Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is July the 14th. Every single time I say the date, I have to look in the corner of my... It's the 15th. What? It's not... No, it's the 14th. I'm looking at my computer screen. It's the 14th. I was about to say that every time I say the date, I have to look at my computer screen because I never know what day it is because all time is the same right now. Uh, we are... We have a good show for you this week. I think we have a lot of, we have a good mix of things that are a little bit lighter um, than what we usually discuss, and then we have some things that are less light, or about as about <laughs> as light as what we usually discuss. Um, this has been a wild week for me and Tammy in the media. Uh, Tammy, what do you what do you make of this? We haven't talked about this at all. The letter from Harper is written by. Uh, Thomas Chatterton <laughs> Williams and some colleagues, and then co-signed by everyone from Margaret Atwood to J.K. Rowling. That you know, and I think in very sort of measured, almost edited terms, said that you know people shouldn't be fired for whatever, and that there should be free speech, et cetera, et cetera. What'd you, what'd you make of this, Tammy? I, I actually haven't talked to you at all about this, so I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, I found it mostly sort of annoying, and I was sad to see some writers on there that I really respect. <laughs> um, I found it annoying because I don't really think there is a problem with what they see as cancel culture. And although, um, you know, I think the letter was probably written mostly in response to the Bennett firing at the New York Times yeah. opinion page. Um, but, you know, Ian Baruma was on there who had, you know, basically had to step down from the New York Review of Books and other people who feel that they've been offended um, in some terrible way, even though they're a lot of them are extremely rich and still have really fancy careers. Yeah, I mean, I my sense of it was that I also felt a great deal of annoyance. And I don't know, I mean, especially at one particular person who I now have like a general non-aggression trip packed with mostly for my own sanity and also to stop embarrassing myself. But, um, you know, I, I've, I, the same thing always crosses my mind when these things happen, which is that uh, they were really mad because, like, some guy got fired from his job, right, for posting something up from Omar Wasau that was about the efficacy of violence and looting in a protest and whether or not it works electorally, which, you know, is a perfectly fine thing to, to discuss. This guy got fired, and this seems to be what triggered this. Uh, Ian Baruma, as you said, was the editor-in-chief of the New York Review of Books. He published a, a piece by Jean Gomeshi that was sort of like a, you know, it's like one of 15 tell-alls about what it was like to be Me too right? Is that, am I remembering this mm -hmm. correctly? And the, yeah, and then the proximate cause of the firing was an interview that he gave to... Oh, yeah, Isaac Chodner, um, where he... Were, yeah, to yeah, Isaac yeah. from Slate, where... It was almost worse than what he had published in the review. But so, at anyway. that point, the per the people who intervened at that point were the were the published were people who were supporting the New York Review of Books. It wasn't really Twitter that got that one done, right? That was more that yeah, like, that the was university internal. presses turned around and said no, right? And in the case they did, of, and there were staff issues too. Yeah. And within the case of the uh, and in the case of the of uh, of of this kid who got fired, I think it was like, or whoever the person who got fired for these tweets, 
it's not like Twitter fired him. He had like very specific employers that fired him. And not every time these things happen, I don't really understand why the focus is on random Twitter users, you know, and not on the employers mm -hmm. themselves. Because if you made a very good argument to that person's employer and said, you shouldn't fire this kid for this, don't give in to these people, I think that would actually be effective and most people would be on board with it. When you say we need to shut up all these people in the name of free speech, that's when I'm just like, this makes no more sense. It's no longer a coherent argument. And it's because the people who are making this argument don't actually care about that kid's job. You know, they just are all people who have been canceled before. They don't want to be canceled again. And I get it. Like being canceled really sucks and it's upsetting. But uh, I don't know. Like how many of these can we go through? Like I always feel there's a great deal of embarrassment. Andy, as like an outside observer, do you like <laughs> how do you how do you take in these like completely insular media wars? Uh, there's some academics <laughs> on the list. And my friends and I were discussing, like, why is this person on this list? Um, and, and I think yeah. that uh, my, my sense is that a lot of the people who signed on to it, uh, not knowing who was on the list as well. So that might yeah. that probably led to some embarrassment. I have a clarification question, though. This notion of free speech, and I guess this is for Tammy, who you know, went to law school. Free speech is about the state, right? Stopping people from saying stuff. If it's about the quote unquote marketplace of ideas where people disagree with you and push back on you, that's all good yeah. in the american like legal sense of free speech right so i don't yeah so i, I, so I don't understand especially because there's some well they're not yeah i look they're not really making a legal argument they're making a spirit of free speech argument and they're making a radical protection of free speech argument but this is something that i would used to go back and forth about with connor Friedersdorf, who i don't think signed the letter but certainly is one of the people who would have signed the letter you know um and uh, you know, Connor and I disagree about almost everything, but, you know, he always is willing to at least <laughs> argue it out, which I, you know, have to respect in some sort of grudging way. Uh, he is also like my sister's newspaper editor in college, which is a weird factoid, but whatever. Um, this is the guy at the Atlantic, He's at the right? Atlantic, yeah, and he's like a libertarian. So, um, yeah, right. My argument to him was always that college kids who stand up and scream at Charles Murray are exercising their free speech, you know, and that, yeah. that mm -hmm. a ra an actually radical embrace of free speech would also include that, yeah. even though like the heckler's veto and everything like that might preclude it within the law. If you're just talking about the spirit of free speech, you should allow people to yeah. do everything up until violent confrontation. Um, but, you know, like those types, I don't know, like it, it, it seems like we're further and further away from those types of debates, which I actually find more interesting and substantive. And now we're just about gatekeeping within the media. Yeah. And that's in the end what I right. think this is just yeah. about. Um, it's just sending a message out to the editors who run these places that you don't have to always give in to a Twitter mob. And it's not even about cancel culture, you know. Um, yeah. And But I think, yeah, Andy's point is a good one in the sense that, though, it does attack it looks at who has power and who's wielding power. And I think that's the problem with a lot of these letters, because as you were saying, Jay, they're so sort of like abstracted from what they're actually talking about. Yeah. They refuse to sort of cite and engage with the messy details of each particular case. And then they kind of talk about freedom and liberty. And it's like, well, who's circulating the power? Who has access to yeah. the power in this situation? And a lot of times it's the signatories. Yeah. All right. Speaking of cancellation, we have a very funny story. I thought it was funny. Maybe it's not. It's not funny anymore. I'll just put it that way. But at the beginning, <laughs> it seemed kind of funny. Um, coming out of San Francisco, and it is this. Have you guys been to Boba Guys? I've heard of it. No. You've heard of it? Yeah. My brother-in-law works, you know, works in tech in, in the Bay. 
So I'd heard okay. it. Yeah. Like, what was the context of you hearing about it? Was he like, man, you got to try this with guys? <laughs> I, think, I, <laughs> I, don't, I think he just said that's a place that people go to. Yeah, it's like a, I don't know. All these places kind of look the same. These like have like Chipotle aesthetic, you know, like very glossy, yeah. non-serif font, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So for the store, for you, all of you who don't know, which I imagine is a lot of you, Boba Guys is an artisanal, that is the word they use, Boba Shop in the Bay Area. It was all, actually now all across the country. It was started by these two Asian dudes who went to Cal, uh, Bin Chen and uh, this guy named Chow. I forget Andrew, his first name. Andrew Chow. Andrew name, Chow, yeah. And uh, it, it sort of was the idea that they would make Boba not into like some small stall, you know, where like people stand up. Uh, and that they would make it into like a nice airy coffee, sh- modern coffee shop type of thing, like a gentrifier boba shop, if you can imagine it. Um, yeah. And they were super woke on Instagram and they're always talking about like, you know, Black Lives Matter and equality. And it turns out a lot of it was bullshit, you know, that these guys were running a business where they preferred white employees to black and Latino employees where they preferred white employees to Asian employees, and that, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that this is all a skip. So let me read a little bit from this piece from uh, SF Weekly. I think it's an excellent piece, which is, uh, when Boba Guys opened up its first shop in the Mission District in 2013, the company had a lofty vision, ostensibly influenced by the high-minded founding statements typical of so many San Francisco tech startups. The guys from Boba Guys set out to usher in a revolution in quote, artisan milk tea, quote, bridging cultures across the Asian diaspora one sweet caffeinated cup at a time. Under Chow and his co-founder Bin Chen's direction, Boba got a new look. You knew who was making your drink as opposed to the faceless corporation of other milk tea chains. Boba Guys was easy to connect with. They made a point of being open on social media, and their Instagram is dotted with smiling company faces alongside glossy pictures of their iconic strawberry matcha, matcha lattes. Passion, quality, and transparency are listed as the company's core values in their online mission statement. All right. Do you first, okay, first, first question off the top. Do you guys like boba? Like, are you, are, do you drink boba? I do not. I do not like it. But you've had it. Uh, you don't like it. But I had a period of, like, high school, yeah. like, Asian hangs in the shops. Yeah. I feel like that's, like, yeah. you do that. But I think it's disgusting. <laughs> Andy, do you like boba? No, it's not disgusting, but it's like tons of sugar and milk. So yeah, like when you're young, you can have it, but it's like yeah, right. Your body can yeah, tolerate it's like it. A, you can't drink it every day. You feel terrible. <laughs> what's the yeah. what's the cutoff age for when it's socially acceptable to drink boba at least <laughs> at least three times a week? Uh, three oh times God. a week. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Nineteen and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you start to fall apart after that. Yeah. 19 and a half. So like college students, a college junior should not be drinking that much boba tea. I would say in your, in your 20s, this you can have it once a week as a nice, as a, as a, as a reward for the a, a hard week. It's weekend. the tapering. Yeah. The 20s is yeah, the tapering yeah. period. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't have any strong opinions about whether I like or dislike boba. Um, you, I would never go out of my way. Is it in? I would never go out of my way to get boba. But sometimes <laughs> if I walk by a boba place, I'll get like a taro milk tea, which I think is good, okay. without much sugar in it because I find the sugar to be overwhelming too. But uh, right. yeah, I, I, okay, so <laughs> now that that's out of the way, <laughs> we're all very, none of us have strong takes on whether boba is good or bad. Um, like, what, what, to me, this story was interesting in that it seemed to be extremely emblematic of a certain type of thing, right? 
and I'm having a little bit of a hard time figuring out what that thing is. And I was hoping you guys can help me figure it out. So, like, Tim, what was your reaction to reading this story? I sent it to you enthusiastically and said this is hysterical. It has <laughs> since become non-hysterical, but we'll explain that in a second. Um, Tammy. I picked up two things. One thing is how abusive food, the food industry yeah. is, and how, like, the food supply chains and like food retail are just like terrible places to work and that these are workers rights issues and my second reaction was that this is a hilarious illustration of the kind of performative wokeness that we've been critiquing on race on a race basis because these guys were going deep on black lives matter signage and the only reason they were really outed is because people then went into the comments on instagram and were like fuck you guys (laughs) so that's like amazing to me as a portal andrew chow um Uh, Maybe we'll play a little bit of it. Hey everyone, um, it's Andrew. I wanted to say something on behalf of Ben and I. I'm one of the co-founders. I want to, um, we had a statement prepared. I'm sure you guys um, saw that we were going to say something. But this is kind of off statement. Like you you can't see, but all I have are like these outlines. And I want to just speak on what's on my mind. Number one, um, this is even from the beginning that Boba Guys prioritizes the movement over money. We always say movement over money. When Boba Guys started, we used to say the Boba Revolution. You know, it was because we were like a movement. Not the same as what's going on right now, but that was the mentality. So I want that to be very clear. Movement over money. We obviously didn't do enough. We, we need to do the work because we didn't do the work. We didn't do it before. It's funny because we preach next level quality. I was at the stores today and it says on the back of our cups, like we take boba and tea to the next level. And then other things we say, we take it to the next level. The idea of that is saying, here's what the industry does. Here's what boba shops do. Here's what coffee shops does. And here's what we, we, we take it next level. We push the envelope. And I don't think, I'm sorry, we don't, we didn't do it. The way they got outed was that Andrew Chow, the founder, recorded two 14 minute videos <laughs> why are they so long <laughs> did you watch them <laughs> i watched the one oh, but wow. on the second one about like their workplace all and he was talking about this incident that had happened and he was apologizing for it the comment section became like a reporter's dream where it just filled up with all these allegations <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then he deleted the second one and he said I'm about radical transparency, but I value the safety of our workers, and I didn't want the people who were uh, telling their stories to be targeted for harassment. I'm like, okay, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. right. like, I believe that one. <laughs> Good one. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, um, Andy, what do you think about uh, what do you think about boba guys when you read this story? Uh, my thought was that their artisanal bubble tea wasn't anything special; that it was just milk and tea. I don't understand what they were like. <laughs> Seriously, I was like, yeah. I was like, what are you guys like? What is so fancy about? Like, I think it was a clear example of like them selling <laughs> organicness, healthiness, blah blah blah. But like the product itself, I don't. I know. Um, I could. I, I can't imagine it's how it was bullshit. Any yeah, it was total bullshit. And Andy is a scholar I of I tea. Did, I did think about like what's my tea angle on this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I did, I did click on the video. I think this is emblematic of what the story is talking about. I did click on the video of their on their website about how do they find their teas, and uh, it's really like a, it's a this white guy with red hair. I don't know who he is or what he's doing in the videos. He's like the main character in the videos. <laughs> it's him getting on a plane to China, and then the 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 the, the co owners or the co founders 
or like his tour guide um as as he like shows this white guy around like taiwan and china and like the chinese people are like in the background right they're like the they're like the props in the background so i think that might be emblematic of the broader theme of the story which is that their goal was not even to was definitely not to sell you know to black and latino people but not even to like asian people their goal was take this niche product that already sells to asian people and make real money by selling it to you know the white, to white, the white people. people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Look, I ex- I respect the hustle. You know? <laughs> like, <yeah. And laughs> but I, there's a specific move that they do, Andy. I totally agree with you that there's no difference. You know, but I, if you go to Seattle, for example, <laughs> you guys know this. That if you go down to the International District now, which is where the fall restaurants are historically, and a lot of Chinese restaurants, mm-hmm. um, and you walk around now, some of those places have been replaced, and one of them is super interesting to me. It's the one that's on the corner of like. Jackson and something and something the really famous one that's in like a shitty old red building do you know what I'm talking about it's like yeah, a triangle yeah, yeah, corner yeah okay so it's like a dim sum they, place originally they uh they closed for a while and their kids the people the owner's kids opened up across the parking lot their own pho place right and it is more expensive than the original and they use stuff like organic fucking half-boiled eggs and shit and then they just charge more I you see. know but it's the same pho yeah you know so like that's that's what this is <laughs> You know, like yeah. that's that's sort of the trend in Asian restaurants to sell things to white people is that they buy some stools from DWR, or they get like a DW DWR right. knockout yeah. stool, and they say Neiman Ranch egg <laughs> instead of like a normal egg, yeah, 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 yeah. and nobody can tell if it's a Neiman Ranch egg. That's a good hustle. Yeah. I respect that, but like I don't know if that's what like that's what this is, except that they take it too far. Yeah. I think you know, yeah. like, uh, is... like because implicit in all of that is what. Implicit in all of that is that the stuff that my parents made is dirty and disgusting. Right. You know, right. like it's like it's dick. It's like day class A. It's for poor people. Yeah, yeah. Here's like the here's like the cookie cutter one that looks like a fucking new coffee shop in Crown Heights or something like that, right? Yeah. Like here's here's the gentrified version of it. Yeah. And the funny part is that and this is the part I actually find interesting is that when Asian people do this, they always have to include some statement about black lives matter or black people in it have you noticed that like they always have to be the wokest people out there like they can't just do it like they have to yeah they have to somehow performatively be right. like a person of color in a way that really right, intersects right. with blackness in a super cringy way but you're saying i don't know am i but you're saying they're doing that to appeal to their white customers to the white people that's what i'm saying yeah, but like yeah. do you agree with that like because first of all i think this has a long history you know like of of these sort of crossover chefs they all you know like yeah. they're all they, they, they talk about rap they talk about all these other things you know like um they talk about race a lot mm-hmm. you know like in this sort of way in which mm-hmm. they are really strongly identifying themselves as people of color quote unquote yeah. but like the people of quote color thing is always in relation to blackness right and it's weird that they have to go through this sort of ritualized thing to sell shit to white people right you know and right. that's fascinating to me i don't huh. know what do you think about that Tammy, what do you yeah, think? That's, a, that's interesting. Yeah, I think you're identifying the kind of slotting that happens. Like, once you are in the, like, white majority space, you're thinking, like, okay, there's only, like, 10% of things that can be, like, non-white. <laughs> so I need to now, like, you know, justify my existence in that 10% of things by being, like, I'm down with all of X, Y, and Z yeah. people. Oh, so you, also you see it as, like, box. a market. You see it as, like, a market, as a market space problem. Completely. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it definitely echoes some of the affirmative action stuff as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, Andy, what do you think? You're you're looking pensive and thoughtful. No, that makes sense. That uh, they're saying. Th- I guess. I guess their thought process is like you know these white customers are going to come into our store. They're not going to know exactly what bubble tea is, or if this is one of those restaurants where like I can understand what the menu says. So they want to say things that sound familiar and kind of, but familiar yet exotic, right? Because when they say it, they're not just another, um, you know, like American food company saying it. They're they're one that's selling a different quote unquote culture. Uh, so they're exotic, but they're at the same time they're doing it in a way that to kind of reaffirm all the political social values of their customers. Yeah, right. And mm-hmm. I think that like, do you guys remember the Korean taco? Roy Choi is it not in LA? Is it not yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it's around. He's moved but, on. Um, <laughs> you know, like that was a huge food phenomenon, and Roy became very famous. Yeah. I actually read a profile of him that he got very yeah, did he? That he I'm got very mad about. That I actually felt bad that he got mad about because I felt like he misread it, but I didn't want to explain that to it's him. It's the food truck in LA. But, like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, like Roy food came out of him working in kitchens and Roy did not grow up rich at all uh, going through the yeah. riots and then you know spending a lot of time with Mexican people in the places that he grew up right which is in kitchens which is where Koreans and Mexicans do spend a ton of time mm-hmm. together and his right. food was a I think was an authentic expression of that in the best way that it can be in a mass market not even a mass market it's a fucking food truck but in a in a piece of food yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that people responded to that "Quote unquote authenticity" by lining up around the block for his uh-huh. taco, yeah. and mm-hmm. I think since Roy that there has been this sense that uh, you have to somehow be street or something uh-huh. like that. <laughs> you know, like you have to be like uh, kind of like hood in a way, right. and that uh, that that like hood, <laughs> of course, in huge quotation marks, right? <laughs> and then I think that informs a lot of it. Like I just think that like there needs that. That basically Asians feel so invisible in this sort of stuff that they have to put on the, they have to put on the, you know, like they have to basically put on this act where they're not just Asian, but they take on other traits of other minority groups I to see. make themselves like more into an identifiable, yeah. visible minority. Does that make sense? Yeah. So do you feel that way for just in food or like generally, like in pop cultural things? But, but food is also one of the main avenues through which Asian Americans have gotten famous. Yeah, right? definitely. I mean, I yeah, I just maybe that's food. the best example. Yeah, yeah. I think except, it's a and lot then I guess food, would you say that somebody like yeah, like you have to in Hollywood. you know okay. Asian American a lot of like the young Asian American like celebrities they have to like they have to profess that they listen to hip hop and have like hip hop clothing. They can't be like I'm into whiny emo rock, right? Like that doesn't fit the image of uh, of the sort of like renegade minority. Yeah, we're, <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I I do think there's part of it too that where they feel like I think there's I think it's two sides of the same thing, but they feel like they're in a contradiction with themselves, which is why I find it so fascinating. And the first part is that it is them trying to be white liberals, right? Like it's them putting on all the sort right. of behavioral and performative. Uh, like racial concerns of white liberals, right? Like that, so that's the first one, because they feel like they're in power and so they have to make statements about their employees, they have to make statements about systemic racism, et cetera. So that's fascinating, because I clearly identify with like a management class there. The second part of it though, I think honestly, is that like it's branding, you know? And that yeah. you, can't brand your, yeah. you can't brand yourself to white people as Asian. 
Like you can't just be like, this is a boba, Asian boba shop. You yeah. Have, you have to get over that by being, by basically being black. You right. Know, it's a form of blackface almost. Uh, oh, I see. And yeah, yeah. I think that's actually like so, like I think within that contradiction, that's like basically all of Asian American 2020. <laughs> like ascend, ascend, I'm talking about like ascendant Asian Americans. Right. Like, th- like look at the way that people use AAVE. Like within the woke spaces of like Asian America, yeah, you know, like it's fucking wild. You talk to these people, they sound like fucking Grace Kim from Irvine, you know. That's my actual cousin, but like, you know. Like they, um, <laughs> and, then, and then when you hear when you see them online, they're like, "Y'all, I'm so tired," and you're just like, "What the fuck are you doing?" Yeah, you know, yeah. like like what what is this performance? I don't know. I find it totally. Fa- I'm not actually judging any of these people. I just find it totally fascinating. Your minds are blown. I can. No, I'm thinking about should we talk about time. should we talk about Aquafina or is that its own like you know, you know is that is that too much to unpack yeah. there? Well, no, I think that's an interesting. I mean, I was thinking of her too because Jay, your critique is based or what you're trying the phenomenon that you're explaining is could have been said about like white kids who wanted to be rebellious yeah. in like the 80s and 90s, right? Like hip hop is the access point for them. Yeah. So, you know, I think to some extent it's this, like, it's kind of a global phenomenon in a way where, like, black street culture is a channel for people who feel like, okay, they're not really white, but then what is the other thing they are? You know, they don't want to participate in the dominant culture, and so there's this other, like, escape hatch type thing. But I think but it's then a you're little... squaring that with, like, this entrepreneurial class. Yeah, but I think that don't, don't you think it transforms at the point where it becomes about business? Because like you know, like I grew up with a right. lot of Jewish, so that, exactly. like the Jewish kids that I grew up with in North Carolina all got super into hip hop, right? Mm-hmm. And this is like a phenomenon I think of Jewish kids who are around like thirty five to fifty right now who get super yes. into hip hop, right? <laughs> and that that for and people have written about this, so I'm not I'm not like pathologizing or going into people's heads. Part of it is because they don't really feel completely white, mm-hmm. you know. Um, especially exactly. in a place yeah. like North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a very earnest like embrace and, and engagement with hip-hop that I think is totally healthy. And I, you know, the people that do that, I tweeted about this, right. but the people who do this sort of thing are some of my best friends. You know, I find them to be the most like, tolerant and thoughtful people in the world. And uh, I think that's very different than what's happening here. Like, I think right. that yeah, what's happening no. here, and I actually think that Aquafina is more of that, you know, like growing the up prior. in Queens. Yeah. Yeah, the prior of like somebody who is at some point in her life very enge- earnestly engaging with hip hop culture and black culture as somebody growing up as mm-hmm. an Asian person in Queens. Yeah. Than this, you know, like this is the next. This is the next iteration of that. Right. And th- this, like, I'll just this sucks, you know, and, and <laughs> like this absolutely sucks. Yeah, yeah. Like, like I hate these fucking guys yeah, so much. Uh, I was reading it. I was just like, God, fuck these two. You yeah, know, like. Yeah. You're trying to make a startup boba shop? Like, what the fuck does that mean? (laughs) One more detail about this, because I thought this was the funniest one. It's like the most Asian thing they do. So apparently these two uh, would put out a test, and to graduate into the manager role at Boba Guys, you have to pass a test. Here are the details about this fucking test. Passing the exam, according to Griffin Moskowitz, a former associate store manager at Boba Guys' Union Square location, was unnecessarily difficult for multiple reasons. One, you weren't compensated for travel time or expenses, which deterred qualified employees from taking the class in the first place. Two, to pass the exam, you'd have to beat the class average. 
it was possible for everyone in the class to pass, but you wouldn't have no, you would, you, but you would have to have 100% across the board, Moskowitz said. Otherwise, it ended up being maybe like two or three people would pass and everyone else would fail. When Proctor took the exam for the first time, she got 91 points out of 100. She needed 92 points to pass. According to Proctor, the exam administrator docked points for, quote, not smiling enough. <laughs> so, uh, the only thing that so I find amazing. funny about this is that these fuckers went to Cal, you know, which very famously has like a curved test system. And they created like the thing that they took out of going to Cal is to like put a curved test system in their fucking boba shop. You know, <laughs> like that's how. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, 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 I fucking hate these guys. You know, like, like I absolutely hate they them. They fill me with so, so much terrible. rage. Um, terrible, terrible. It's um, so, like, can you just imagine having to see them every day? That just, uh, <laughs> it would be horrible to be their employee. Oh, can you imagine them sitting around, like, uh, going, like, hey, so we need to, like, you know, figure out how we're going to make managers. And instead of doing a normal process that's, like, you know, like, we, we, should, exactly. we should talk to the employees, <laughs> see who people like. We should talk to some of the customers and see who people like. You know, this store has been bringing in this much money, and we think it's because of this person's performance. They make a fucking curved test system. Like, this is, like, <laughs> so Silicon Valley. <laughs> and it just shows that these kids are never out of college, you know? Like, they're always so fucking stupid. It's amazing. Uh, now, the story did get ugly after, you know, even within this story. I wanted to, uh, and we should not try and excerpt this all out, but there many allegations of racism within the managerial ranks of yeah. Boba guys. That's why this became a story itself. That's not surprising to me at all, right? Like, is that, is that surprising to you? Like, it just doesn't surprise me at all that this would happen. It seems very part and parcel with the food industry. Yes, um, it does. And then sexual harassment as well, which came out in the last couple of days. Like, there are right. other, all, also allegations of sexual harassment, which also seems part and parcel with the food industry and a place that has no oversight at all or actual care for its workers which this place clearly does because they run it like a startup and they, you know, like they see all these people yeah. as pawns in their stupid branding game, you know? Um, totally. And, you know, like you, you'll find this at, at every single big ch- thing that expands really quickly out of some VC money, you know, because like this guy like was like artisanal boba and then gives it to some VC guy and the guy's like, here's $30 million. <laughs> and then the guy's like, well, I'm just <laughs> this fucking asshole who wants to make a test for employees. <laughs> and, then, and then you have this. Uh, you should, you should, you okay. should, you're in the bay. You should stop by and check it out. I know. <laughs> I, know. I was curious. <laughs> oh yeah. Do you know the other thing about them? Is that their sign? Their brand is a pangolin. Oh, is it? <laughs> yeah. That was. I thought it was an yeah, aardvark. Oh, oh wait, that's an aardvark. What's the difference? Aren't they all the same? No, is it a pangolin? I don't, think, I don't okay. know. Unless you've confirmed oh, it's, it's a pangolin, I don't think it's, it's a pangolin. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I would actually respect them if they, uh, <laughs> they started serving like they started serving like pangolin boba. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it was a pangolin, and then Corona hit, and they're like, "It's an aardvark." Yeah, exactly. The, bo- <laughs> the, the boba is has a, yeah. is infused with pangolin scales. Yeah, I think it. Yeah. I think it maybe was a it was a pangolin. All right, that's. Uh, Tammy, um, you wrote something that came out in the New York Times yesterday that I think that we should talk about because I think that, you know, we have struggled given the everything that's happening in the country to do as much international coverage as we would like, right? And I think that we can forget ourselves because of what's been happening with the protests. But you wrote about uh, the, the uh, suicide of the mayor of Seoul in the New York Times. Um, can you just tell us a little bit about tell 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 the listeners what what exactly happened because I think many of them might be sure. unfamiliar with the story. 
Yeah. So last week, at the end of last week, Park Wonsoon, Mayor Park, who is a wildly popular mayor of Seoul, which is a gigantic city, which has about a fifth of Korea's population in it, committed suicide, as far as anybody can tell. He went up to a mountain near the Blue House, which is a presidential residence, and was found dead on a hiking trail there. And this happened just hours after his daughter had reported him missing. It was really rare for him to like cancel all his meetings and leave his office, which he had done that day. And it was discovered that this was not long after an employee in the mayor's office had filed a complaint against him for sexual assault and harassment. So the story that we can now presume is that he had gotten word of this complaint, even though it was supposed to have been confidentially filed, and killed himself in response to that. Um, And this happened just a few days after another thing that was very shocking, which is that um, a man who had served just a year and a half in prison for running a really disturbing uh, child pornography video website was refused extradition to the United States, where he would have likely have gone on trial and served much more time than the year and a half he was given in Korea. Um, So anyway, I, I mentioned that because... It was a horrible week for Korean women. It was a week in which Korean women felt like the justice system just could not respond to their needs, could not make them feel safe. In the case of Park, obviously, he took, you know, quote unquote, justice into his own hands by killing himself. The effect of that was to extinguish the claim that the woman had filed because under the rules governing criminal complaints, the cops had to say, well, we can't actually pursue this claim anymore because the defendant is dead. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's also an incident where the triathlete, right, a Korean triathlete killed herself and um, yeah. uncovered a lot of the abuse that happens within the athletic training program there as well. Exactly. Um, yeah, so it was, it was her death. It was the failed extradition, park suicide. And then just a few months ago, there was the beginnings of shutting down this horrible ring of sexual abuse on Telegram that was run by a group of young men. So anyway, this, you know, these are just the most recent events in which has what has been like a horrible few years, really, of mostly sort of cyber based crimes against women, but also sexual abuse and rape and harassment that have been unveiled thanks to feminist uprisings in Korea, which I'm, I really, really admire. But nothing has happened systematically to respond to those uprisings and those calls for accountability. Okay, so can you tell can you tell the listeners a little bit about these feminist uprisings in Korea because I think that one of the things that's been frustrating to me is seeing like so much Korean nationalism amongst Korean Americans right where they sort of yes. per- portray Korea as the wo- as the uh, as the poor family in parasite you know what I mean where th- I'm serious like <laughs> dead right. serious I think no, that's I what you. they think Korea is or that's what they're trying to portray Korea as is like oh it's all these like kind of like you know, like crafty, cool kids who are really good at Photoshop, <laughs> who are trying to take down the bad chipples, <laughs> and everyone is super woke about everything in the same way that BTS right. says stuff about like Black Lives Matter. Um, but like, yeah, just give us some historical context for this, like, and what it what it's arising out of. Yeah, sure. So there's always been feminism in Korea, just like in any other country. And I think the problem in characterizations of Korea or Taiwan or other countries here is that 
you know, we always feel like worried that it's going to be, we're automatically going to slip into some sort of stereotype if we like provide critique. But it's of course ridiculous to say that there aren't struggles happening within these countries. So in 2016, which is before the Me Too movement started in the U.S., due to the Harvey Weinstein scandal, there was a horrible murder of a young woman in the Gangnam district, the rich district in the south of Seoul. And all these women came out with like post-it like testimonials about their own like abuse and harassment that they had suffered. And it led to mass protests in the streets and lots of like social media activity and people in their workplaces standing up and saying like, I too have suffered like all of these harms on the street and on the job. Um, and if you guys remember, 2016 was also the year of the candlelight protests, which were mass million protests in the yeah. streets of Korea that took down the president, Park geun But what's not often attended to in that is that that was really a, a woman-led movement in a lot of ways, because the protests against Park had actually started not in the streets, but at Iwa University, which is an all-women school in Seoul. So if you trace the feminist uprising from the spring of 2016, when that when the guy murdered the women in Gangnam all the way through the candlelight protests, like we can say that feminism actually was a huge support to getting President Moon elected in 2017, who is one of probably like one of the most progressive presidents Korea has ever had or liberal presidents, like truly liberal presidents. Yeah, don't say that too but loud or else Korean Twitter is going to crush you. <laughs> Korean leftist Twitter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you guys think like cancellation from the so-called left is a problem in the US, oh you should God. check out Korean yeah. Twitter because the supporters of Moon are batshit crazy and they will like burn you at the stake for saying that he has like a bad song. Yeah. Like, it's like if it's like know. if resistance Twitter was the worst Bernie bros. Oh my God. <laughs> like, imagine yes, that. Exactly. Imagine like the Krasensteins were are like, you know, were, were so toxic <laughs> that, that, that you... It made you like want to like rethink your entire life. Um, can totally. you like uh, just for a little bit more context on this because I think it's it's uh, you know this like what are the material differences between like American feminism, Korean feminism? Like you know in America it's always quantified in things like well there's the income gap right like there's uh, for every yeah. dollar a man makes a woman makes like eighty two cents or something like that or sixty seven mm-hmm. cents if they're a black woman. I I don't know what the actual numbers are but I think it's around there. Um, like yeah. in, in in Korea, like what are what 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 does the feminism movement after? Yeah, so the income gap to be sure. And then also, um, you know, obviously related to that, just like we have here, like an aggregate wealth gap over the course of your career, because your career is gonna be really short, you know. Um, child rearing in Korea, um, you know, will kick you out of the workplace in a lot of times. So that's a huge issue, which it is here too. I mean, these are universal issues, but I'll just speak to like what I know about the Korean situation. There's a lot more pressure to have a sort of like housewife culture, a housewife like of domestic responsibility, a life of domestic responsibilities for women. Yeah. Um, this has led to like a phenomenally low birth rate and a phenomenally low marriage rate over recent years because Korean women are just sick of this shit, basically. And then there are like more like, you know, sort of like intricate cultural things. Like there's a culture of going out after work, right? Which has led to a lot of sexual harassment and assault, like drinking heavily related to work. Some of that has been cleaned up in recent years, thanks to the feminist uprising, but that was a huge source of sexual misconduct. Um, oh, and you mean just like Koreans other... getting shit-faced after work? Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah, you go out as a group and you 
that's part of your job. Mm, you feel entitled to do that. It's also part, and of then you like can imagine what that leads to. Business yeah. travelers who work in Korea, exactly. Have to, like white, yeah. like white dudes will go to who went to like Ohio State will go to Korea on a business trip, <laughs> and they'll be like, "This is out of control." You know? <laughs> like, yeah, it's the best frat I've ever. Yeah, seen. or they'll just be like, yeah. "They're crazy." Like, what's wrong with that? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that culture is, is yeah. so toxic, you know. And I hate, it's I really, hate really how bad. it's like, uh, how it's bandy, how it's like sort of promoted by like a certain type of Asian American dude as being like, Korea's cool. Mm-hmm. Like they're not cool. Totally. They're fucking no. deep, deep violent alcoholics. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it's not, exactly. <laughs> it's not cool. Yeah, it's not cool. It destroys families. Um, I'll also say that the compulsory military service in Korea is like a huge source of toxic masculinity as well. And I'm not just using that like in a cute, right. you know, no, it's actual PC toxic term it's way, like but actually this is like literally mas- toxic <laughs> masculinity. <laughs> yeah, like in its most pure form. Um, and I think the general militaristic culture of Korea, given the situation with North Korea and the semi its semi colonial status, also feeds into like a deep psych problem around like what it is to be a man mm. in Korea um so you know that those are the sort of like psychosocial factors I would point to but you know and then I think generally we have to remember also that like women going to college women having careers this is relatively new in Korea like in the development period women often had to sacrifice their own ability to go to school for their brothers yeah yeah, yeah. so we're talking about like our generation being, you know, one of the, the first generations to have a full opportunity. And then when they get catapulted into it after going to school and being so educated, they see that they actually can't be fully themselves and have a full life in yeah. their career. How much of it is moti- how much of it is inspired and modeled after Western modes of feminism? You know, like uh, how much like do they talk about like Betty Friedan or, you know, um, I don't know. Fucking Gloria Steinem yeah. signed that letter. <laughs> um, you know, did- a few years ago, there was a huge boom in feminist publishing mm-hmm. as a result of the uprising. Rebecca Solnit and Roxane Gay were hugely mm-hmm. popular in Korea. So contemporary Western feminism is being read. Roxane Gay and, and, and Rebecca Solnit. Wow. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing. The book market there is like a whole other story. But yeah, there's been a lot of... Um, kind of left-wing feminist literature that has come into Korea. And, you know, in I think also has interfaced with, like, a burgeoning LGBT movement there. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I would say both domestic European and American feminisms are, are very influential there, kind of going back to, like, the 70s and 80s. Okay. Tam- Tammy, yeah. you were saying that this is, like, a hor- this has been a horrible, what did you say, week or horrible recent period? But <laughs> At least week. The more you yeah. describe this, this, to me this sounds like... It could be read potentially as like this is just the natural part of the process of the uh, uh, the feminization of the workplace, let's say, right, of women entering the workplace in the long term. And yeah, you know, like you don't, we won't have justice for this Mayor Park and all these other cases where they evade, um, you know, being fully prosecuted or whatever. But the fact that these complaints are emerging and, you know, creating these in some cases, terrible responses, but just in general, the fact that people are willing to come out and issue these complaints, this seems like it's kind of, this has to happen if, as you say, uh, Korea is kind of undergoing this transition from a very male-dominant to something less male-dominant um, kind of public sphere. I mean, is that a more optimistic way of reading a lot of these incidents? <laughs> 
I mean, I would read it as as being a testament to how women are feeling like there's enough infrastructure and support in the society that they can lodge the complaints in the workplace. Like that, that speaks to the activism that's around them, that they know they will not be completely shunned or have to kill themselves, you know, which is, or have to kill, which is like, no, that's real. No, of course. Korea is like the highest suicide rates every single year, Hmm. you know, in the world. So, and a lot of it is from women who like, you know, in the past, the story was always that, oh, this woman got pregnant out of wedlock and killed herself, you know, which I think happened a lot. Yeah. Or this woman, and then right. the adoption, you know, or they gave their kid up for American adoption, and then they killed themselves. You yes. Know? Like that, 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 that is the story. Um, I don't know. How much progress is there, actually, yeah. though? Because, you know, we're all diasporic, you know, and we always just, like, I observe all of this through the filter of the media, you know, like, I don't live there, so mm-hmm. I, I read about it. But, um, you know, like, I do think that there's this disconnect, in my head, at least, between what I learned about Korea as being this deeply misogynist place from my parents, you know, not from my parents' behavior, mm-hmm. but from my mom talking <laughs> about it. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, um, and, and then what I see now is, you know, like in the, all this uprising stuff. And then I just wonder like, you know, like, at, like, where are they on, on the continuum? Like where, you know, like to me, it seems like they're standing up for things that are st- are, that are that do trace back to when my mom was in Korea 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. And that it's not like they're already, you know, like workplace equality to some degree, that there are people entering the workplace and that, you know, that, that this is like sort of a way to try and take the last step towards equality. It seems like this is a first step mm-hmm. to me. Is, is that wrong? Yeah, no, it, it feels... Maybe a second step. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, to me, like, I, I, I was reporting in the women's movement there in 2018. I felt so excited about stuff I was seeing. But on a daily level, navigating workplaces and general social interactions there, it's extremely exhausting. Mm-hmm. And you, it's, I feel much, I feel that it's much easier to be a woman here. Sure. Do you, do, you feel, do you feel more discrimination for being a woman reporter in Korea or for being, like, a uh, Korean-American? <laughs> Um, <laughs> I think people were confused generally about what I was doing, but yeah, I think uh, it was more about, probably more about being a Korean American. Yeah. The women reporters there are extremely fierce. There, okay. I'm, I'm curious why in 2016 it was AY University, the women's university, that led the protest against the president who was a woman. Was there a, was there a special, yeah. like, a, like, yeah, I mean, was there no, like, we should support the woman president no matter what, or was it... We we especially should be critical of the woman president. Um, this is getting kind of deep, but the one of the factors of the downfall of the president was that she had this sort of like old friend slash yeah. spiritual aid that was making like decisions Ra- for her. Figure, yeah. That the Rasputin woman figure, her daughter was at Iwade. Yeah, and the 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 reason why that people got time. mad is because that's like the Wellesley or Radcliffe of Korea, and yeah. like uh, they're so sick of of. Uh, of corruption of getting another kid into the Radcliffe or Wellesley of Korea. Yeah. The, the <laughs> anger really started as upper middle class people being super mad about college admission. Oh, that's very Asian. Okay. <laughs> it was, it was tied to that, but it, yeah. No, but, but that, I think that is just... like, if you want to find the patient zero, like the seed of it, <laughs> that was a lot of it, you know, because like this girl, like there are all these photos of this, of this, uh, of this poor young woman at, you know, like whose mom got her into 
AWOL through like a uh, corruption, like on, she was like an equestrian rider. Do you remember this? She was Tammy? an equestrian. Yeah, so you see her on this yeah. fucking horse and of course you're going to get really fucking insane. It was fucking insane. <laughs> um, the, yeah. the last thing I wanted to ask you about this, Tammy, which is just like, this, it, it, this is a really complicated story and I found it very hard to figure out what to make of it because this guy, the, you know, the, the mayor of Seoul, as you point out in your piece, was like extremely popular, very progressive in many ways, right? And you can yeah. see that sort of conflict, I think, in the way that you saw the, a lot of the reporting and a lot of the remembrances that people did in English language about it, where they're, I think they were, that they almost felt like shocked, A, that, the, that, this, that these allegations existed, but B, they almost didn't seem to want to believe that they were true. Like, did yeah. you get a sense of that? Like, that, that's a sense that I got. Definitely. That, like, people are like, not this guy. It couldn't possibly be him. And now he's dead. Yeah. And like, There's a huge backlash from his supporters and from the left, just shock and disbelief. I mean, ironically, he was the, he was the man who litigated the first sexual harassment case in Korea. Right. He was a man who won every feminist award. He, like, made so many promises to make Seoul a place that women would feel safe. And he had an incredible human rights record. It's absolutely shocking to everybody. Mm. He's the last person anyone thought this would happen to. Or, we keep saying it that way, last person <laughs> who, might have a, who might have abused a woman. Um, there are also rumors online that he did this to multiple women. Ugh. So we'll see. We don't have anything, you know, verifiable on that. The yet. sense I get but is it's, basically it's, it's that people's huge. response is this better be true, you know, like and if it's not true, yeah. then they're going to get super mad about it or super red pilled about it. And it's, be, you know, it's because of all the things that you mentioned before. But I imagine like in Korea, like uh, um, I've, I've said this on the uh, podcast before, but like I can read Korean, but I read it at like such a slow pace that it makes reading difficult you know i'm like a child who who like <laughs> reads the funny pages <laughs> and the sports section but doesn't read any of the doesn't read the first section of it because i'm just like the i'm headlines. not bothering <laughs> that yeah um what what what's the what's the reaction in korea about this i mean outside of you know like shock and grief does it does it does it does it kind of like derail some of the political projects that are going on there right now the newspapers there are different than here in the sense that they're more like specifically political and so i think you see exactly the range you would expect given the identities of those newspapers um the what what this is being taken as is in a way a sort of test of the moon administration because mayor park and and president moon were close mayor park was thought maybe to be moon's successor in the next election so that's a huge shakeup for the liberal party and that liberal democratic party just won a huge, you know, landslide election in April in the parliament. So, you know, I think on, on some level people are like, why do people keep attacking the libs? They never talk about the conservatives who like rape and molest people and their sexism, you know? So there's a little, a knee jerk reaction um, from the left. And, and to that, I would say, Sure, but this is what's happening now, and there this is there are have been multiple very very high profile cases of Democratic Party leaders doing this. So there we need to say that there's also a problem. Yeah, and I, just to caution people who don't know, the suicide is not necessarily meaningful in terms of ascertaining whether or not this happened or didn't happen. Right? Like right. People in Korea just kill themselves a lot. I think this is the most callous way to put it, but it's true, right? Like, I mean, it's just true. Like. People. You think, but like, what would do you think his name would have been so shamed, even if he were innocent, uh, just to have to go through the whole trial? 
Well, I mean, look, he, so, he said, I'm sorry, right, in the, in the note that he put in the end. Which so I think it's to me, right, guilt. does seem like an admission of guilt, right, but right. I, I'm just cautioning where I feel like yes, you have to think of... Su- we're not supposed to do that as, as yeah. journalists and health concerned workers. I think the WHO has guidelines around, like, trying to figure out, like, why people yeah. did certain yeah. things. But, you know, the the... I mean, he had just given a speech a couple of days earlier. He had just hosted a radio program the week before. There was no indication that he had any sort of mental health issues or anything else going on. I, so I think that's why people are saying, well, it seems like this is why. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I Yeah, I think this whole attitude of like, you know, this, you know, this lying woman like now got one of our best men killed yeah. is like really fucked up and. You know, yes, we don't have a lot of facts, but I think we need to also see the process through and try to have either through a civil process, through a civil process, if we don't have access to criminal process, an adjudication of what really occurred. I mean, a lot of the allegations are based on his activity on his phone. Like that is a that is an ascertainable yeah, thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, there are witnesses. There are. Yeah, you know, that so does. Seem... I think in order for people to feel resolution, there needs to be an investigation. It, we can't just punt it. Happen? No, I agree with you, Tammy. I think that's where uh, you might. You know, I, I wonder how that would fl- that sort of statement would fly here. But I agree with you. I mean, like you mm-hmm. can't. That's what most most people on, on the left are probably thinking, which is like absent any sort of details about it. These are the details that I know, which is that this guy who was a wildly popular and effective mayor who stood up for things that and fought for things that I also agree with is now dead. And I don't know why, you know, and uh, yeah. you have to figure out why, you know, and and, right. um, and you have to f- figure out why both for the for the accuser. But you also have to figure out why, because this actually is a political story that goes beyond all of that. Totally. You know? So um, I thought you've made that, and I think piece, the last thing that point very well. I'll say piece. is like. Thank you. I mean, I feel like this is also a case of like, you know, that movie, The Help. <laughs> nope. I haven't seen yeah, it. Exactly. I'm, I mean, I'm I haven't seen it, but see I always help. think of Tammy, like, how dare you? <laughs> I, I am. I am also too woke to see that. But what I what I want to say about the, the, I kept thinking about The Help as this was happening because there was this whole discourse around it like. It seems like you saw The Help. <laughs> I have not seen that. <laughs> you're talking, I feel so You're talking accused. as someone who, 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 who gave money, who sent money to see that. I'm sorry. Okay, keep going. All right, Let me yeah. explain. This is like, I know, it was probably the wrong example to bring up. But the reason I was thinking about that is because the re- the first reaction people have is like kind of like with, um, oh my gosh, who's the comedian who, from the Midwest, the SNL guy who was accused of I have no idea. sexual assault. Al, what's his name? Al Franken. The oh, senator, yeah, yeah. Al Franken. Franken yeah. Right? So like an Al Franken type situation or, you know, someone much better than that, which is yeah. Mayor Park. Like we think like, oh, good people don't do these things. Right? In the same way that like the help is like only bad people can be racist mm. kind of thing. And it's like part of this is <laughs> that also was, accepting that, was that like. your evocation of that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Now that I explained it, I'm like, why did I do that? I, that I was so no unnecessary. I have no idea what you're talking about. But I do understand what you're saying overall, but I don't understand how the hell it's into it. But please continue. Yeah. <laughs> it was potted in my brain. Anyway, but the the point being, we need to be comfortable with saying, like, there are a lot of good people who are, do, like, good people right. in, the, in the sense of, like, doing good works, doing things that we think are progressive in society who are going to be, like, sexual harassers, sexual assaulters, and, like, right. rapists. Yeah, and it's totally consistent to think that, right? Exactly, and that, um, yeah. And I, 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 uh, uh, I, I just, every time this happens, I just get depressed because of the it's suicide depressing. stuff, you know, how common it is and um, 
how it's so culturally ingrained that when something like this happens, the one uh, the only path forward is to uh, kill yourself. You know that that seems to be an abiding thing, and you know it's, it's the sort of thing that makes you think like very, uh, you know, culturally about things that you would rather not think culturally about. Hmm. Um, Tammy, do you, all right. So you said that you need an investigation. Will one actually happen? Like, is it up to the government to decide, or well, is it private? Going to be done privately, or how? How will that get decided? My understanding is there could be an administrative channel and a civil channel. And then in addition, after the press conference on Monday where the victim's attorney was speaking, um, they actually, the victim actually filed additional criminal charges against people who had been harassing her um, online about her having filed the complaint. And then, you know, I wonder also if there will be criminal or other sorts of consequences for the people who might have facilitated Park's behavior. I don't know. Like, I, I feel like there's going to be a lot more okay. on this story. Our our last topic is going to be about uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski, <laughs> which I think everybody knows is Woj. And uh, this is a big story in NBA Twitter, but I actually think it's an interesting story for us to discuss because I think it has to do with Hong Kong. And it's about an interaction that he had with the senator, Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley sent an email to ESPN in which he, he, like sent this, he made this performative thing of sending this letter saying, like, well, if the players uh, have slogans for Black Lives Matter on the back of their jerseys, why can't they have respect the blue or like I love America or uh, free Hong Kong. <laughs> and that was the toxic, that was like the poison pill that he put at the end. The backstory of this is that in the NBA bubble, uh, the NBA has sort of uh, said that players for the first four games or so can have, um, you know, like corporate approved and league approved slogans on the back of their Jersey for the black lives matter movement. Um, <laughs> Andy, I, I don't care about any of this except for the free hot cog part. So if, but if you do care about the other stuff, let me know. Like, I, I felt like this was like <laughs> such a checkmate debate move by Josh Hadley. And, and the, 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 the part that is interesting is that Adrian Rojnowski, who's the biggest NBA reporter, wrote him back, fuck you, to the email, <laughs> which was weird. But also, I you think was sort of done out of like this anger and id like how dare you try and checkmate me and then josh holly of course put it on uh twitter and said this is how your be- reporters behave they say fuck you and then uh adrian wojnarowski was suspended and had to apologize so uh andy what would you make of, the, of this of this amazing story yeah so the, i think the galaxy brain take is so everyone on nba twitter they're all aligned right like free woge uh, the NBA, ESPN is doing the wrong thing. <laughs> Most NBA viewers and fans and players are Democrats, so they already hate Josh Hawley. So they're all against yeah. him. Mm. But, like, it is true that... But! <laughs> right? <laughs> like, and it, to me, it's not the Hong Kong thing. It's like, Hawley has a point. Like, this whole, like, pre, pre-chosen, these are your eight available political slogans thing. And some of them mm. are ridiculous. They're like... There's like 40 of them, yeah. Yeah. But like, oh, really? yeah, so they range from like Black Lives Matter to I am a man, which, you know, is like a uh-huh. iconic civil rights sign um, to uh, to 
There was a uh, crazy one about group yeah, group what, economics. What is that? What is that? <laughs> group yeah. economics. It's like an idea of like mutual aid, I think. You is know. It? Okay. But it. Oh um, and then there's stuff like I matter and yeah. um, unity and stuff like yeah. that. Like it's it's just nonsense. And it's it, the process was a negotiation wow. between the NBA Players Association, uh, the union, and uh, the NBA and Nike. Yeah. Who would be making the jerseys and yeah. so what? holly is you know and so they came up with this list of slogans and everyone dunked on it forever but you know um but holly's <laughs> right like what if you're going to give them this ability you have to let them do whatever they want or don't <laughs> give them the ability um so and but then i think it's also to me it was interesting as an outsider i know jay you worked at espn for a while like as an outsider this makes it very clear how like there is no real separation between the sports leagues and the people who cover them and how like, I didn't even think about this mm. until much later. Maybe it's clear to everyone else. They're playing this NBA bubble in Disney World. E- ESPN yeah. is owned by Disney. ES- yeah. And ABC so is owned crazy. by Disney. So yeah. they're all, like, so I was like, why, why do they choose Disney World of all places? People said, do Las Vegas, do any number of places that are... Alaska, Hawaii, yeah, you know. Any number of yeah, places China, that are like any of these places, yeah. And, but they're like, their TV partners, like, let's just use our company's basketball yeah. courts and hotels and... Uh, I don't know, maybe that was obvious to everyone else, but to me, that, I thought that was, I think all, all this is just bringing to the surface how um, ridiculous this whole situation is is becoming. And, and yeah. then these ESPN reporters are yeah. getting really, what's the word? Uh, they're getting like very like... Feisty. Feisty is a good n- neutral fe- word. Feisty, <laughs> like feeling like... You know, I guess it's not a neutral world so like, word because it's very gendered. But you know, you can yeah, <laughs> yeah like I'm sorry. you know, Pablo Torre, wow. deep internalized misogyny over here, and in, in, in addition to my <laughs> deep internalized racism, Andy, keep going. Uh, so, for instance, Pablo Torre tweeted. He's Filipino American. He tweeted like, you know, Republicans don't care about Asians, so they're using this Hong Kong issue as a wedge issue. Mm-hmm. Totally fair, right? But that's also kind of still avoiding. The, avoiding the actual criticism, which is like you're yeah. constraining yeah. what people are allowed to say. So it feels like they're just kind of people are just kind of latching on to like things to distract from. Well, okay. In defense of my friend Pablo, who's a very close friend of mine, and um, and I'm not just defending him because of uh, because he is my friend, but um, I I think that what Pablo was saying was that this is a bad faith yeah, thing sure. argument I, by and Holly. I, I totally agree and, it's a bad faith thing, yeah. but a bad faith argument could still be correct once in a while. No. Yeah, no. Uh, no, 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 I agree with you. Yeah. Like, I think that Holly is correct, too. And it pains me to say that because <laughs> I think Josh Holly is a piece of shit. And <laughs> everything that Adrian... But that Adrian Wojnarowski in that moment is not defending uh, the players. He's defending the league. You know, he's defending the league's decision to make these jerseys. And he's defending the Players Association and Nike's decision to limit to these things, yeah. right? And, like... Of course, if you're going to have slogans on the back, you should allow somebody to put, like, stand with the blue on the back of it, you know, or free Hong Kong on the back of it, or else it's a pointless exercise (laughs) that make that highlights even more just how, uh, how much of this stuff gets, look, I like gets just sucked Mm -hmm. up by places like Nike and the NBA and gets turned into this worthless sloganeering (laughs) that's, you know, accepted. And then obviously brings up the counter question or the follow up question of, but well, what does it mean that that Nike and the NBA are willing to embrace these slogans? What does it say about those slogans? Right. You know, that that of all the things that you could possibly say, these are the ones that aren't dangerous to them in any sort of way. Yeah. Right. Uh, 
Um, right. We don't. How does this relate to that earlier episode with the NBA in China and also Jamel Hill? Mm. What, what happened with Jamel Hill? Well, Jamel Hill, I, let, let, Jamel Hill, I don't think it relates to too much. Okay. But I think with the NBA in China, I think that that's the point where Holly, as a master troll, yeah. is pushing yeah. them in their soft spot. You know. And I th- indeed. And can you just refresh my memory about what that exactly was and how there it was? There was a general manager for the Rockets, Daryl Morey, who just innocuously retweets a free Hong Kong. He didn't even type it. He just like retweeted it. And then this set off the Chinese government to have a huge reaction to it where they um, black... At a time when NBA players were playing like right. exhibition games in right. China. So they're in China yeah. at the right. time. But yeah. the, big, the thing that pissed off everyone, which I think is fair, is that no NBA player would like stand up for Daryl Morey. Or when they did, actually, they got also blasted by the Chinese government. So they just quickly shut up. Uh, yeah, and the China is w- worth like $150 million of revenue for the NBA, right? Probably more than that, honestly, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, I think that was the estimate. Wow. And I was like, I believe it's way more yeah, than that. Yeah, yeah. That, I'm sorry. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's a question of like... So this has become... I've actually kind of surprised about this. I was, you know, I wrote an article about this in the fall and my friend... Um, uh, I don't know what he was trying to do, but he put it on NBA Reddit just to see how it would get re- received. And NBA Reddit's, uh, <laughs> uh-huh. as far as I could tell, like most average age is like 18 year old white white kids in the suburbs, uh, and they uh-huh. like immediately voted it down because <laughs> I, I was I, and I was uh-huh. I was just kind of making like a lot of the same, more sophisticated, but you know, kind of giving historical context. And this is a, when 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 the GOP latches onto Hong Kong to attack the NBA. This is a bad faith thing. We shouldn't have to be forced to choose between these mm-hmm. two and mm-hmm. uh but most nba fans they don't want to hear it they just want to like uh criticize uh the nba players for like not standing up to china and this and that kind of you know it's nba reddit who cares like what they think but um no nba reddit is a, ma- a massively yeah, powerful for sure. force in nba reporting for sure. i mean basically all like some huh. percent not all there's some very very good nba reporters and i mean that sincerely but many of them just go to NBA Reddit and pick shit yeah. up. You know? ESPN does um, that. Now. Wow! Like they just, yeah. they just, ESPN has become like just like Twitter feed at this point. But um, <laughs> well, there's no basketball. Yeah, in yeah, defense. yeah. I was, I was just surprised. I was just. <laughs> and he's like, like, they're not covering like the three point shooting, <laughs> quarter three point shooting of the Philadelphia 76ers this year. And like, like Andy, there's no basketball right now. It's okay. I mean, this might bring us back to like the cancel culture discussion where it might just be like the loudest voices are the ones who take over. Maybe people like are on, are on NBA Reddit actually like thinking thoughtfully about whatever articles, but what you usually get is like a stampede of like a, th- a billion likes or dislikes stuff so i, I, I was kind of surprised that the average nba fan probably thinks that all nba players are in the pocket of like xi jinping and um are cowards for not saying free mm. hong kong or something do you think they do think that yeah i think the criticism is really strong and i get the criticism i'm you know i'm not against the criticism but i you know obviously i think it's more complicated than than so it, than siding with like yeah you know, marco rubio and ted cruz over china no I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that did complicate this in a way for me was that watching the NBA players and the coaches, including people like Steve Kerr, who gets all this credit for being so outspoken, be interviewed about Hong Kong and China was like they look like they're in a hostage yeah. situation. Yeah. You know, they really looked super uncomfortable. Interesting. They gave very carefully worded, clearly PR written statements, you know, 
and they wouldn't comment on it, and it's because the league's money yeah. was tied up into it. And so with somebody like Holly, they come in and they say, well, these self-righteous clowns, you know, are hating cops and they hate America. And yet the second that there is a compromise to their extreme amount of money, you yeah. know, that they're making, they'll abandon it all. So how seriously can you take yeah. them? Right. Like, and that's the, that's that's why he does that. And that critique is at the center of this cancel culture type of debate. You know, like it is a question of what is the actual lived values of of. Yep. Of wealthy liberal people, yeah. um, regardless of their race, you know whether they're NBA players or whoever. Yeah. Like, will they stand up for their values when, if it involves any small amount of sacrifice to their corporate partners or their business partners? Yeah. And you, I don't know what where we are with that debate though, because like I think about it all the time, and of course there's part of my debate brain that has read Foucault or whatever and says like, all oh, this is bad, you know, it's all co-option. <laughs> It's a shine on the rotten apple, you know. Like, is that from is that from is that from critical race theory? Is that from critical legal studies? I think it's from critical legal studies, but right, like uh, uh, CLS, right? Like, I think that's a CLS statement. That's shine on the rotten apple. Like, I think that. And then and then I, <laughs> Andy, you're shaking your head. Am I wrong? No, I have no idea. I've never heard that phrase. Did you run? Did you run CLS? And I did, but that's like reading one paragraph in a book, you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I did a lot of that in law school, and I've never heard that phrase. Okay. <laughs> but I'm sure it's but there. That is the CLS argument. Yeah, 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 right? for like sure. Sh- yeah, 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 yeah. Um, for sure. CLS meaning critical legal studies, which is the precursor for critical race theory, which now is just like a republican talking point but like um (laughs) uh where are we with that like i don't know where we are because and i think about it all the time i want to be like cls good you know and say the nba slogans are are terrible and they show the co-option of the movement but then sometimes i just think you know maybe it's good that there's some co-option in this way and that these companies are changing. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know where I am with all of that because that seems to be the question that underlies One thing that um, you were talking about just reminded me of, I actually looked at Holly's actual press statement that was being sent out. And he talks about like working class Americans are losing out to China. So there's like, yeah, he is doing this sort of, he's drawing a class divide and kind of saying like the NBA players are super rich and they plus China are on one side. And the average working class American, you know, the so-called fantasy of what the Republican Party voting base is, is on the other side. So they are making this a class issue about like America is being invaded by, you know, money and and outside forces issues. And the NBA is like, and to to just make it about like xenophobia or China, I think is is it's sidestepping that class question of that. I think a lot of populist Republicans like Josh Hawley are probably going to make some um, make some gains off of that message. Um, and I, and I think, you know, you're probably right that the takeaway isn't so much like, what do NBA players, what is this, what the key, the key thing is not so much like, what are NBA players and coaches thinking about China? Like who really cares, right? They don't really know anything about that. It, but I think it does kind Mm -hmm. of reflect back upon, well, then how seriously do they take things like BLM or domestic issues, right? They're only doing it because it's, they're only doing because it's safe. They're only doing because it's marketable. Um, Right, like totally. Nike wouldn't, um, Nike wouldn't put like you know Blue Lives Matter on on on, no. right, on their commercials. So yeah, I think as far as the co-option thing, I don't know. I mean, it's, I guess it's to be determined. Uh, it, it can't be a, I don't know. Is it a bad thing? Like, is it just? I, I, I don't. Tammy, what do you think? I mean, you you're not as into the NBA as Andy and I, but. Not to say something, not yeah, to make a gendered like assumption, a, but, you know, as your friend who knows, 
Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I know very little about this. I mean, yeah, I I was actually just going to ask you guys, like, is this – how specific is this to the NBA? Because, I mean, in sports politics world, world, this week was also the week that the Washington Redskins yep. name went away, right? Um, so, like, is something happening that that is changing this the shape of what Andy was just talking about? It's very specific to the NBA, the NFL okay. still wraps itself up in the flag and the, and the troops, you know, and even though they've changed a little gotcha. bit because of the movement, it's still going to be about the troops, right? They're going to still do the salutes. They're still going to, their main sponsors are still going to be the military. Um, I think that in terms, and the NBA is different in the sense that its stars are much bigger stars than in any other sport. And they're right? like much LeBron James is, is so sport. much more visible and the sport is more uh-huh. black than okay. any other sport. And so they, you have this thing where you have a very black league and you have this paradox where the stars of that very black league now are the most visible athletes really in the world outside of maybe like Messi or you know, like a certain sp- specific soccer players. And right. um, I think that the question when Republicans see this sort of me- how they're overtaking, how this, these sorts of messages are going into corporations, at least to the Instagram pages of these massive corporations, that they feel like that's a threat to their power, you know? And what is the best mm-hmm. way to do that? Well, you just say that corporate statements are worthless in general, right? And that corporations shouldn't have a voice in this as well. But uh, the thing that, I don't know, like the thing that struck me about this, Andy, and I think we agree on this, and maybe this is us being too debate-brained, <laughs> is that when you say, when Josh Hawley asked that question, why should a player not be able to put free Hong Kong or, or defend the blue on the back of his jersey, you know, um, you, the only answer that the left can give or the liberals can give or defenders of Black Lives Matter can give is that you, Josh Hawley, are a- asking that question in bad right, faith. Exactly. You can't actually answer the exactly. question. That's what that's what that's what I yeah. that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Like it wasn't you know, not to pick on your friend, but like Doc Rivers was saying it. Like a lot of people yeah. with the NBA were saying, and this is like, and I say I criticize this because I think I catch myself doing this. Like instead of addressing the issue, you just attack the source. And like whenever Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, mm-hmm. Josh Hawley say anything about Asia, we just kind of close our ears and just say like, well, those are just bad American politicians. Um, but you know, maybe every once in a while. Either they have a point or the fact that they can make this point is something that we should worry about, right? Yeah, and it's the same right. thing as the letter in the sense where, like, yes, we, can, we should interrogate and we should dismiss a lot of this because of the source, yeah. right? Like, we should not allow them to excise their entire yeah. histories because of this. But at the same time mm-hmm. where I find the letter to be totally fatuous and, like, not actually saying anything, you know? Like, the question that Holly asks is actually a good question, yeah. you know? And that, yeah. that's the difference. And, like, I think that... That if somebody like me or Andy asked that question, um, that we would be screamed out of the room by you know by, mm-hmm. by NBA Twitter. You know, I, I think we'd be screamed out of the room, like being like, "Oh, you're apologizing for that fascist." Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it would be once again redirected yeah, to right. the question about who Josh Hawley is, even if I, as mm-hmm. like, you know. The wokest right. person in this in this on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> why don't Why don't you? Why don't you tweet? Problematic Tammy. 
and Marxist Andy has, <laughs> even if I said it, I think that, that it would be redirected to Holly. Why don't you? And I could say, I could say every single time, I could respond to every single person and say, I'm not talking about Holly, I'm asking the question myself. Yeah. And it would still be redirected to Holly. I think Holly. You, could, you could run an experiment this afternoon just to see. Okay, I'm going to try. Promote, promote, yeah. pr- promote, the, promote the podcast <laughs> like two hours later at the very bottom of the thread. Either yeah, exactly. <laughs> Either that, or or everyone so, would ignore it. I find that some of the. I think know, the other thing I would say is I think everyone deep down knows he's right. Like a lot of players have complained that these yeah. logos are stupid or mottos or slogans yeah. are uh-huh. stupid. Yeah. And I think a lot of the reporters, which is interesting, a lot of the reporters you can just kind of, you could tell they're smart enough to know this is stupid, but they're not going to say anything, right? Yeah. And, uh, well, that's because. It, well, what did what do you think Adrian wanted to that, say? Like, what is in the fuck you? I think he really hates, um, I don't, I don't want, I don't know him. The only interaction I had with him in person, he like mouthed a a sanity at me because I was reading over his shoulder and it was Blackberry, um, which I shouldn't have been doing, but I was kind of, you know, like it was, it was at the NBA draft and I, he was standing there and he has this thing where he like tweets out the picks beforehand. This is years ago, by the way, before he was like the super man that he is. And I wasn't going to tweet it out. I wasn't going to steal it. I just wanted to see his process, you know, like how it happened. Totally off the record. I was just curious as a human. And then he turned around and caught me doing it. It was like mouth, like, you know, I think the words that he said to Josh Hiley. (laughs) 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 And then he somehow figured out who I was and blocked me on Twitter for like a year. And I was like devastated. (laughs) Because I was just like, oh, my God. Young kid trying to... I wasn't that young, first of all. I mean, this is when I was at the (laughs) New Yorker, so you don't have to feel so bad for me. But like, yeah. Everyone saw uh, it was going to get pick number three except for you. Because you were blocked. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was blocked. <laughs> no, he blocked me like a few days later. Um, the um, I, I don't know what jo- I think that what Wojnarowski was basically saying was like, don't paint us into a box, you know. Mm. And I think in that way, it's not the it's not like the freedom fighting statement that people think it is. You know, it's basically like, I don't see. call us out on our base contradiction. <laughs> you know, because. Uh, because like you're an <laughs> asshole and you're a you know like you're a de- you're a Republican. I think that was it. And I think it's partisanship. Yeah, I think that's what his. I think that was his statement. And in that way, I mean, once again, that's why I was curious if you guys thought it connected at all to the Jamel Hill. Because I was just wondering like what the sort of boundaries of ESPN staffers' political discourse has been. It seems very tame, and they're very worried about being portrayed as liberal, which is cr- which no. is crazy. No, yeah. no, that's changed a okay. lot in the past couple months what do you think has happened um, I, I well i don't okay, I, I this see. is based totally on speculation i don't have any inside information but um i think that things have loosened up and i think that people are saying things much more politically and i think part of that is because there's no sports to talk about right and mm-hmm. the other part of mm-hmm. it is because i think that espn understands at some level that the repression stuff that they were doing after jamel Right where they're saying you can only talk about sports if it's related directly to a sp- or politics if it's related directly to a sports story, that that was really causing problem with their talent. Mm. You know that their talent was feeling constricted, but also that it was leading to the dumbest convers like you know mangled mm-hmm. conversations to try and fit that mold. Right, and that uh, that I think they realized, and so I think they've they probably still I'm sure they still have that policy in mm-hmm. place, but I think they've basically ignored it. Um, I see, but. So I don't think it's that. I just think that, like, I don't know. I don't, Woj is not, like, uh, the NBA is a very, this, 
is a very strange league in the sense that it gets, and this is part of the reason why it's interesting, is that it gets so much credit for being so socially progressive and being like the woke league that like, you know, like mm -hmm. young liberal millennials in, in New York City are super into and will text each other about and like, you know, be like, and discussing the most insufferable, stupid ways that shows that they weren't into NBA until it became trendy <laughs> to be in the NBA. Like they get all of that, you know? <laughs> And at the base of it, it's still like this league run by a bunch of white billionaires that, you know, is trying to protect their financial interests. And I don't understand why that's not more obvious to everybody. Like they're doing this fucking thing in Disney World at a time of a pandemic. Yeah. You know, like they're it's crazy. They're they're setting up their own independent testing sources where like. Oh, my God. Like I was talking to somebody and they're talking about how like. Uh, they knew somebody who was a nurse who had, waste, who had waited seven days or five to seven days to get her results, and she ended up testing positive. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, this is a frontline worker Holy in Florida. Shit. And uh, during that time, she didn't know she had, she had to stay at home. Not get, uh, I don't think she got paid for being at home, but like, she is waiting that entire time as a frontline worker. Somebody else has to fill in for her, you know, in the place where there was an infection. And then the NBA is going on and just being like, well, we need to do this because we need to figure out a revenue for this year. It's disgusting, yeah, yeah. you know? And oh I will God. say that, like, the league, my experience in the NBA is basically that every single thing that I would write critically, they would push back about in a way that was insane. You know, like, uh. they, would send, they, would, they would send letters for corrections. They would, like, you know, they would send, like, 15 emails. They would email Jake, like, you know, the boss, my boss at New York Times Magazine, they would call incessantly, like they're, or huh. they, they harass reporters. Huh. And everybody knows this behind the scene. And so the people that they set up for scoops, because it's scoop-driven driven yeah. economy, are the people yeah. who play nice with mm -hmm. them, you know? And right. that's why there's not- It's like celebrity access journalism. It is, and that's why there's not that much criticism about the mm -hmm. league. That's why these reporters will like take a quote from Greg Popovich and just treat it like it's fucking Martin Luther King. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. makes so much sense. Yeah, see? Yeah. That's a little bit of inside scoop from, from <laughs> the old Kang here. <laughs> and if you talk to NBA reporters, they'll all admit yeah. it. But they, they'll admit it off the record. They're, you know? Except the ones who are drinking the Kool-Aid so right. hard that like, they think it's... Yeah. Like, they actually think that, like, they don't, that they believe the myths about themselves. Yeah. There are some very good NBA reporters. They're very, you know, but a lot of the league is run by yeah. that sort of stuff. There's these... And, Sorry, there's these YouTube videos of these players are um, posting of like life in the bubble, and I was yeah. watching them and they're like, "Oh, this is really interesting." But I do think there is an effect. You know, one uh, one of these writers, Ethan Stress, has said, "With all this new access to sports leagues, it might have made the leagues unintentionally made the leagues less likable, because now we get to know these players more and get to know mm. all the kind of see the warts more. And you know, now when you watch these videos and you see how they're getting tested five times a day, that has to for the average viewer kind of make you think like wait why are they getting fi tested five times a day it's so uh, fun compared to you like you said yeah it's gross yeah compared to like I mean people are waiting like 12 days you know like Victor Blackwell who's a CNN reporter you know like who has a lot you know you imagine would have access to a lot of networks of where you can get tested yeah. said that he, he waited 12 days in Atlanta you know like for, for his test results to come back yeah. and like that's that's it, it's it's morally, I, I find it so obviously disgusting that uh, the league's like stance on Black Lives Matter and yeah. like, you know, putting these stupid slogans on the back of jerseys or painting BLM on the court. Oh my God. Like, you're, <laughs> I, 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 I like, 
I tweeted this, like, I did put this on Twitter, but it's like, having workers that come in to work in the bubble and then go back home to, like, infected places or, like, live Mm -hmm. with their places, that's what's happening. It's not a true bubble, like, workers go in and out of it. Having, uh, you know, like, use having the spectacle happen in Disney World while, like, the rest of the state is dying, mostly brown and black people in those, in that, in that state and across the country having the workers who are like brown, black, maybe some of them are like South Asian or Southeast Asian come into the bubble to work so that you can make more money. Like that's what fucking systemic racism yeah. is, you know? And oh like God. they won't, like the, it makes it, so, it just makes, I don't know. Stuff like that makes me think that like the critical legal studies scholars are right, yeah. you know? That there is no absolution yeah. for like racism and equality within capitalism that you can't you can't fix it within like the corporate yeah. structure and that all this stuff does actually harm harm movements yeah. but mm. so you're not gonna watch the games <laughs> uh i don't think i am <laughs> okay no i'm serious I, I think i'll maybe watch the finals or something but like i don't want to watch bad basketball but i also like i don't know i i i, I found as a former sports nut now that they've all been taken away from me, I don't miss it at all. Really? Okay, I think that's our show. Thank you for listening again this week. If you want to uh, sign up for our newsletter and have all the podcasts delivered to your email, that's the best way to support us. Go to goodbye.substack.com. We have a new URL that's a lot shorter. Thank you, Hamish, for uh, suggesting that at Substack. Or you can email us at, us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at, at TTSG pod. Thanks for listening.